Let's uh, read our way through it, and then we'll discuss it. Psalm 103, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, and as the flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon those who fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all his hosts, ye ministers of his, that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We uh, start into a series of psalms now. You notice that almost every one of them began with the word bless, or very shortly after uh, you get into the psalm. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, I, I guess I'll ask the question, anybody know offhand uh, what the word for bless in Hebrew is? Hmm? Barak. It's a name you've heard quite a bit lately. Barak is the uh, word for blessing. It uh, is sometimes translated to bless or to thank or to praise, all coming from the same root, Barak. Now, there is a sense when we say bless the Lord that we have to understand what we're saying. There's a sense in which only God alone blesses, and that is gives benefits from his hand to us. When we bless God, we really give Him nothing back that will be beneficiary to Him. He is not waiting on us to pat Him on the back. He doesn't need us to be His cheering squad or, you know, to pep Him up when He's down. But our blessing God is an act of thanksgiving. It is to reflect the fact that we acknowledge His blessings to us. So we are blessing God in return for benefits received. All we can do is to simply say thanks, thanks to God. You'll notice that it is an activity. 
that is said here to engage the soul. We sometimes here in Memphis speak of soul music. Well, this is a soul psalm. You'll notice the psalmist says, All that is within me, that is the inner man, everything I am, everything, every faculty of my life, I am to engage in this activity of blessing God. It takes effort. I, I heard it said one time, a long time ago, that heart work is hard work. We, we tend to think that our worship ought to come easy, and it ought to. It ought to be unforced, unstrained. It ought to take no effort whatsoever for us to engage our soul in the worship of God Almighty. But the fact is, is that oftentimes we are sluggish, we are lazy, we are forgetful, and so we have to sort of prepare ourselves. We engage our inner man in the activity of worshiping God. And that's not evil. That's what the psalmist is saying to do. I want my entire being. Notice, who is he talking to here? Sometimes we, we see a little, sing a song, have a little talk with Jesus. You know, remember that? Have a little talk with Jesus. In this case, the psalmist is having a little talk with himself. You, you ever talk to yourself? Well, they have rooms for people like you, James. <laughs> Rubber rooms, you know, <laughs> this thing. Well, uh, but notice how often the psalmist is engaging himself. And that's what's going on here. Notice he's saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's not talking to anybody else. He's talking to himself. He's saying, let all that is within me bless his holy name. So here he is exhorting his own inner man, his own soul, to be engaged in this activity of blessing and worshiping God. So there are times, uh, why art thou cast down, one of the Psalms says. So, why are, you so, why are you so depressed? Every now and then we need to talk to ourselves. We need to give ourselves a, a, a little talking to. And that's what's going on here. Well, let us uh, just look at the Psalm. And, and I have divided this into four divisions that I think sort of follow the flow of thought here. And uh, first of all, we are to remember the benefits that we have received from the hand of God, or what I would call what God has done in the first six verses. And as you begin now in verse 3, you will see that after he's told his soul to engage itself and told his soul in verse 2 not to forget his benefits, here he begins to list them. We sometimes sing, count your many blessings. Well, that's what he's doing. What has God done for me? And notice that number one on the hip parade is the fact that he has forgiven all your iniquities. Here's the psalmist talking to his own soul and saying, Soul, you ought to bless God because God has forgiven your iniquities, soul. And it reminds us that the primary thing that we ought to be grateful for is what God has done for us in respect of our sin. We see on the flip side in Proverbs 6, seven things that God hates. And number one is the proud look. In other words, it's this sin. But So it is natural for us to think that primarily our thanksgiving to God thinks back to what He has done for us in the forgiveness of our sin. A lot of us perhaps have erroneous idea that that's some small, slight thing. But when we consider what it costs God to forgive us our sin, uh, surely in the Old Testament, I, I was trying to explain to a young man last uh, Tuesday, 
uh, yesterday morning that um, the Old Testament saint was sort of like saved on a credit card, whereas we're being saved on a debit card. Uh, the difference is that in the Old Testament, they are drawing by faith on an account that will be paid for someday. Uh, there was no money in the bank yet. There is no payment yet. Christ has not come. He has not gone to the cross. And so they are drawing forth by faith from what will be one day deposited in that bank. On the other hand, the New Testament believer like us, we look back to the time of Christ and we're like on a debit card. We're drawing from what has already been deposited. And so there is a difference, but both men in both ages are to first of all consider the fact that most of all, what I'm to be thankful for is He has forgiven my sins. And the second thing is, He's he's not only done that, He's healed my diseases. And of course, uh, if we think of Jesus' words to the Pharisees when they condemn Him for eating with Matthew and the publicans, and He says a physician doesn't come to treat the well, the whole, it comes to treat the sick. You'll notice that the insinuation is these publicans aren't sick physically, but sin itself is a sickness, so... Yes, we we include sin in the diseases of which God has healed us. And yet, this certainly goes further than that. It deals with the fact that the very fact that I'm here tonight, the very fact that I can make this this claim that I have breath uh, to use, means that God has sustained my physical life. He has given me a measure of health. Uh, Now, there's a full measure of health coming. I've told you about John Newton on his deathbed. One of his buddies leaned over. John, how are you doing? He said, I'm almost well. I uh, published a little article when Marsha Lane, E. Debbie Johnson's daughter, died many, many years ago now. And uh, next time I was at Pine Bluff over where her dad pastored, he he had that up on the bulletin board. I was impressed that he was impressed. Hard to impress E.W. Johnson, but <laughs> he put one of my stuff up on the bulletin board. That's, that's doing pretty good. But anyway, the, the title of the article, it was basically about Marcia, about her life and the way she died. And I called the article, The Final Healing. That her death was, in fact, the final healing. And that is certainly true. So we have a measure of health now. Notice who we are ascribing thanks for that. It is to our God. Do you have the flu tonight? Hope not. Who you ought to be thankful that you don't. A lot of folks do. Be grateful that you don't. Notice not only that, but in verse 4, He redeems your life from destruction. That is, He rescues you. And this is speaking of the kind providence of God, the many ways that He has rescued us. I have probably bored you over the years with some of my stories of the way God rescued me out in my Wyoming days in particular. It seems like you're asking for trouble to put a guy like me out in the middle of the mountains with a gun in his hand. I mean, you know, it's just a recipe for disaster. And uh, I was thinking about that today and making preparation for this, just sort of counting your blessings while counting my deliverances, uh, the number of situations I was in. And and just amazing providences of how God came to my aid time and time and time again. I'll, I'll bore you with one. We had been on a moose hunting trip in 1976. Had my 
wife and two of our kids. Jessica wasn't born yet. And my mom and dad went with us. And in five days, we killed a moose, an elk, a deer, and an antelope. We had about 1,500 pounds of meat in this uh, old international travel hall I drove. And we were coming back from the mountains, head, headed back home towards Evanston. And uh, we started up this uh, long incline out near what's called Fontenelle Dam. And uh, in the middle of nowhere, not a soul around. And it's 10 o'clock at night. And uh, my truck goes to coughing, and spitting, and sputtering. And we're pulling a camper trailer on top of the 1,500 pounds of meat. We had tied everywhere you could look. And so here we are trying to make it up this long grade. must have been a two-mile grade. And, it, and the truck is just going slower and slower and spitting and sputtering and coughing. And I'm trying to keep it running. And we get about three-quarters up the way that thing, and it just dies. And there we are, sitting on the side of the road. It's eh, 20 degrees. It's a balmy 20 degrees outside with everybody in there. And there he's not. I had a CB radio. There wasn't one signal. There wasn't anybody. We were just miles from anywhere. So uh, my dad and I, we get to talking. And uh, I said, what are we going to do? And uh, so we, we made a plan. said, next time somebody comes by, We'll get out here and flag them down, and Dad was going to get with them and go into Kimmerer, Wyoming, about 50 miles away, and see if he could get some help to come out a tow truck or something and tow us into Kimmerer. And the rest of us just going to wait there and the, wait there out there in the cold. So sure enough, eventually, as 20 minutes or so later, here comes the headlights. And we get out there in the middle of the road flagging this fellow down, and he didn't try to run us over or anything. He stopped, and we explained the situation. My dad jumped in with him, and they took off to Kimmer. And so I get back in the truck, and now, you know, like I said, it's 10, 10.30 at night, and we're putting bundling all the kids up and putting on their down jackets and all of that because I'm thinking, okay, let's see. If it takes it's 50 miles to Kimmer, that's about an hour to Kimmer. And time he finds somebody, that's going to be another hour. And then time they get back to us, we've got at least three hours to wait out here in the cold before anybody gets there. And so I'm, I'm just sort of mentally calculating all this up when I look up, and here comes the headlights the other way. Of course, it's only been the only headlights we've seen going towards Kimmer. Now this is the only headlights we've seen coming out of Kimmer. And as they get closer and closer, they pull over in front of me. I'm, I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? Well, I get out, and my dad pops out. It's this same guy. They went a little ways down the road and just whipped around and came back because my dad got in the car with this guy, and the guy said, well, what's, what's the truck doing? And uh, my dad sort of expla- started explaining what was happening, and this guy says, I know what it is. I have a truck just like that that did the same thing. He said the fuel line runs from the fuel pump down along the frame and there's a place down there that vibration will eventually uh, rub a hole in your fuel line and your fuel pump will just be sucking air instead of gasoline. He said, I know what's wrong with it. We can fix it in five minutes. So they had just whipped around. The one guy, probably the only guy in the state of Wyoming that knew exactly... It wasn't five minutes. This guy crawls under my my truck, fired up, started right up, never even had another hiccup, and away we go. 
Folks, I got stories like that over and over again. How just absolutely you're you're just saying, oh, this is a mess. It got it got to the point I would say, I wonder how God's going to get me out of this one. I know He is, but I just don't. I can't see it coming, but He will, and He did over and over and over again. Well, oh yeah, let's remember who it is who redeems your life, who's rescued you, delivered you, time and time again. I was thinking about that in relationship to King David, of how many times God came to his rescue. Um, Back on the diseases thing, the thought hit me the other day as I was moaning and groaning, some ache or pain I was having, how thankful I ought to be for my aches and pains. Because if I've got aches and pains, it means I didn't die as a baby. And I was supposed to. They weren't expecting me to make it. So if I've got aches and pains, it, I didn't die as a baby. I didn't even die as a young person. And I came real close out on the farm a couple of times. In fact, one time I have no explanation for what happened. All I know is God delivered me. I didn't die as a young man. Many times could have. It means I've lived long enough to have a little arthritis, a little aches and pains. Ought to be thankful for my aches and pains. A lot of folks don't live long enough to ever have it. All right? Notice the next thing. He crowns you. You know, you're playing checkers and you get crowned. That's always a good thing when you get crowned. And we think, well, if God's going to crown me, let him crown me with gold, diamonds. What does he crown us with? Loving kindness and tender mercies. The best thing you can be crowned with. Far exceeding riches. There's a lot of folks, filthy rich, that aren't crowned with His loving kindness and His tender mercy. And they're miserable. With all their stuff, they're miserable. How blessed to have a crown of God's kindness upon us. His tender mercy. Anybody ever see the movie Tender Mercies? Robert Duvall won an Academy Award. You ought to see it. It is quite a story of an old, drunk, country and western singer that they didn't go into the religious side, but obviously something religious happened to the guy. And and that's the name of the, the movie, Tender Mercies. And at the end of it, he's talking about his daughter who had been killed in a car wreck. He says, why? Why me? Why was she? You know, she's so much better than me and she dies, and why did why did God do this for me? And that's the whole idea of God's tender mercies resting upon us. Go a little further. If you get a chance, watch that. I think it's clean. I always see this stuff on TV, and they cut all the language out of it, you know. And then when people go and rent it, they come and say, "Why did you recommend this?" So, as far as I know, it's a clean movie. I don't remember anything bad in it. And then six, uh, verse six. He uh, oh five he. Puts good things in your mouth. Anybody had any good thing in their mouth tonight? I have. Uh, So that your strength is renewed, like an eagle's. That is, you uh, need a little sustenance, a little nourishment. You Every day we need a little daily bread. And God fills our mouth with good things. That's that's good. We ought to thank God. Uh, Notice He executes righteousness and judgment. That is, when those who are being oppressed, He has His... Agents, the magistrates, 
the representatives of the law who come to their aid. Remember, Paul talks about the civil magistrate is the minister of God for judgment. He is to, uh, in other words, there is a mechanism in place. Uh, Sometimes it's very faulty, as we well know in our society, and certainly uh, if you don't like it here, I I recommend here as opposed to anywhere else I've been, uh, you're probably better off uh, as far as being picked on, being oppressed, being taken advantage of. We have... Uh, I mean, in Mexico, you get stopped by the police. They're crooked, they're corrupt. And you say, well, in, you know, in the United States, we get rogue cops, but we have recourse here. We can always go over their head. We can find somebody up there that will hear us. And over there in Mexico, the guy over him is crookeder than he is. That's why he got where he's at. He was the bigger crook than the guy working under him. So you don't have the recourse. You're just at the mercy of anyone. We didn't get 15 miles in Mexico that time we drove down there. They was trying to confiscate my van. Did their best. But here we have recourse. We have those who come to your aid. And that's what he's saying. Those who would oppress you. And so notice the first section here deals with the benefits that we have received from God. The fact that we ought to barack Him. Thank Him. Bless Him. And praise Him. Then the next section, beginning in verse 7 down through verse 13, is that we are to remember not just what God has done, but who He is, the kind of God that He is. And you'll notice in verse 7, He speaks of God making known His ways unto Moses and His acts unto the children of Israel. The idea is, is that God is revealing His character in two ways. In the law that He has given to Israel, and in the actions the law that he gave to Moses, and the actions that he has displayed to the nation of Israel, especially in the wilderness wanderings. In other words, if you look at the law, as I said earlier a couple of weeks ago, if you gave me infinite power and I had the power to pass any law I wanted to, y'all wouldn't be eating any chocolate. You see, you get a glimpse of me in the laws that I give you. And so in the giving of this righteous law, we see a righteous judge, a righteous God being revealed. And in the acts of God towards His people, we see the kind of God that we're dealing with. Well, what kind of God is He? In other words, this is His name. Remember back there in verse 1, I'm supposed to be blessing His holy name. Well, His name is His character. What He's like. Well, what's He like? Well, number one, does He have a short fuse? You better hope He doesn't. Because you'd have done, said it off several times. He is slow to anger. That is an interesting, that's an interesting observation. Because we think in the Old Testament, uh, the many times we're dealing in the book of Micah, where we see the wrath of God about to fall on his people. But think how long he put up with their nonsense before his wrath befell them. Back there in the wilderness. Yes, eventually he turns them aside to die in the wilderness. But he said, you've tempted me these ten times. Well, you had a short fuse, it'd just take once, twice. But God put up with their nonsense a long, long time. So first of all, he's slow to anger, and then even then, he's plenteous in mercy. We see in Micah that even in the midst of his judgment, that he finds a way to show mercy. And so it is that in dealing with us, though he is a God of wrath, a God of justice, who will judge Even in the midst of all of that, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of the fall of man, he has found a way through Christ of showing mercy to his people. 
And he doesn't give us what we deserve. Notice he has not dealt with us after our sins or rewarding us, rewarded us according to our iniquities. Boy, that's true. You say, I just want what's coming. I just want what's fair, what's right. No, you don't. And be thankful that God has not given you what's just. He's given you even when He judges, even when He punishes you, when He corrects us and chastises us, it is done with a heart of mercy. That's an amazing, amazing thing. You get the picture of the God we're dealing with here? And then notice in verses 11 through 13, we have these similes, that three of them that are set before us. Uh, do you all know what the difference between a simile and a metaphor is? We all awake that day in eighth grade? Okay, somebody explain. In both cases, you're illustrating something, but a metaphor is a straight statement, like um, he's the shadow of a man. Whereas a simile is he's like a shadow. In other words, simile always uses as or like, whereas a metaphor is just straight. They, they say, as a linguistic device, a metaphor is more powerful because you're making a direct statement Whereas with a simile, you're clearly trying to make a comparison. Well, notice three verses here, 11, 12, and 13, all have as in them. So here are three similes uh, noting the nature of God again. First of all, he says, As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy to them that fear him. In other words, consider how high are the heavens above the earth. Now, keep in mind, we would answer pretty high. In fact, we don't even know where the heaven's in. Uh, if we were grounded, we can fly. I mean, we can an airplane. Can you imagine in this culture asking them to think for a moment, how high are the heavens above you? Well, they're way above me. They are unreachable above me. You remember they had the conception of three heavens. The first heaven was the atmosphere where the birds fly. Second heaven was up there where the stars are. And the third heaven, that's where God is. It is way up there. Unreachable, unattainable, certainly to someone in this culture. And notice that in comparison, as the heavens are high above the earth, so God's mercy is that high towards those that fear Him. That ought to make us want to fear God. If nothing else, the fact that to those that fear Him, He has that much mercy. And then the next comparison, as far as the east is from the west. Now, how far is that? Pretty far. Um, hmm. That's almost, we would say, an infinite distance. Now, we know in the universe you go one direction long enough, far enough, uh, you'll eventually come back where you start because we live in a curved universe. But you'd have to travel about 15 billion light years for that to happen. So it's not likely that's ever going to happen in your experience. It's, to our thinking, infinitely far the east from the west. And that's how far God has removed our transgressions. Isn't that a mind-boggling thought? There are times that we forgive people. We separate their... And to forgive somebody, we have to separate their transgression from them, don't we? But we don't move it very far. We may have separated their transgression from them, but it's it's in the closet. 
It's ready to be resurrected. Next time we get in a fuss and a fight, we just dig it right up. What's the old song? Digging up bones. We're just digging up the offenses that were supposedly forgiven. I I had someone tell me one time that forgiveness is basically to put away someone's sin to the extent that it will never be brought up again. Well, that's what forgiveness ought to be, but let's face it, that's usually not what happens. We say, I forgive you, but the next time you wrong me, I bring that thing right back. God is removing our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Never to be seen again. And you know some of the other figures of speech as to the bottom of the sea. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Buried in the deepest sea. Um, Amazing thought. And then 13, like a father, here's another comparison. Like a father would pity his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. Uh, I have pointed out on several occasions that it's only in the New Testament that we seem to have this concept of God as our Father. And there are a few places in the Old Testament where there you see God fathering Israel in a national sense. He's the, when Israel was a child, I called my son out of Egypt, uh, a corporate sense. Um, you see it here in Psalm 103, but here it's like a metaphor. It's, it's a simile. It's a, it's a comparison. Just like a father. It, it seems that it is in the New Testament that we see our Lord suddenly come out of the blue with that, this idea, teaching His disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, directly calling God Father. Uh, you never see David do that. You never see any of the Old Testament saints do that. But you see it in the, in the New Testament in the teachings of Jesus. But we would think that, yes, a father would pity his children. He cares for them. He looks after them. He's concerned about them. And so it is with that same kind of fatherly concern, God pities his people. Okay, so that's the second section. That's giving you a glimpse at the character of God. We talked about what he's done for us. talked about the kind of God he is. Now let's go to the third section which is how he is. And especially what he's being emphasized here is his unchangeableness and his immutability. And to see his unchangeableness, we need to compare it with us. And verse 14 is an interesting one. He knows our frame. That is, he knows the stuff of which we're made, and he remembers that we're dust. Dirt. I mean, that's what you say, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Dust thou art, to dust thou shalt return. Now, that's a humbling thought. That at the end of the day, that's really all we are. Dust, given the breath of God, given a living soul, but we're just dirt in action. That's all we are. Dust, moving around. Dust, talking. Can you imagine the foolishness of dust talking to God and blaming God, arguing with God? Dirt arguing with its Creator. Well, that's the idea. He knows us, who we are. We may forget our frame. God doesn't. He knows when we're talking to Him, it's just dirt talking. <laughs> uh, well, that and a couple of ideas come across that then this is very 
fragile and transient. And that is brought out in verse 15. Our, we're like grass. We're like a crop of grass. How many crops of grass have you seen in your lifetime? I've seen quite a few. Grass comes, then it goes. And we're like grass. We think we're here, we think we're here for a long time, and God looking at us is just like another grass crop. It may be flourishing today, but it's going to be gone tomorrow. It's like a flower that blooms and then flourishes, and then the wind, the dry wind blows over it, it wilts, it perishes, it dries up. That's us. We're just... Uh, the older I get, the more I agree. It's really what we are. We're just here for a day, a short day. Our time is so short and so uncertain. But on the other hand, verse 17, we have a God who is absolutely unchangeable, immutable, eternal. His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, I don't know where everlasting is in the past or where everlasting is in the future, but this pretty much takes in the whole spectrum of time. In other words, God never changes. This merciful God is merciful from the beginning to the end. He never runs out of mercy. He never gets to the point where you would say, notice He's merciful from those that fear Him, His righteousness unto children's children. In other words, it's generational mercy. He's not going to go so show so much mercy to this generation that he doesn't have any left for the next one. It's just every age, every generation of man, God manifests his mercy towards. Towards these, he says, who keep his covenant and those who remember his commandments to do them. Those who are in this covenant relationship with God. God never runs out of mercy for his people. And so we see the transient nature of man, the permanence of God, especially in relationship to His mercy. But notice the last part here, starting in verse 19. We've talked about what God's done. We've talked about who God is. We've talked about what or how God is. Now we come to the question of where God is. Where's God? Now, there is a theologically correct answer, and that is that God is everywhere. We believe in the omnipresence of God. Paul, in dealing with the Athenians up on Mars Hill, says, uh, one of your poets put it like this, in Him we move and live and have our being. He's pointing out that God isn't very far from any of us, he said. You don't have to make a long journey to find God. He's close. He's near. But there's another sense in which we think of where God is. When Jesus would pray to His Father, what did He do? Look around on the ground. Look under a rock. He would lift his eyes to heaven and say, Our Father, who art in heaven. Now, even though the Australian is looking in the opposite direction when he does that, we get the idea that God is above us. He is, he is out of our reach. He is in a realm that is superior, infinitely superior to the realm in which we dwell. And so we would say that, yes, there's, although God is everywhere, God dwells especially in heaven. Heaven is my throne. I'm quoting here the prophet Isaiah. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. There is a sense in which the Ark of the Covenant was God's throne. You'll see it referred to as that. The cherubim with their wings being extended where God manifested His presence. But we are reminded by Isaiah that no, God's throne is not really that box. 
That's just sort of a branch office. That's an outpost. God's throne is in the heavens. Earth is his what? Footstool. Can you imagine an easy chair? You've got an easy chair at home that you sit in, and you rest your feet on the footstool. That here is God. And Isaiah follows that up by asking, where is the house you're going to build him? <laughs> if he sits in heaven, rests his feet on earth, let me see you build him a house. How are you going to contain him? Clearly in, incontainable. But at the same point is, yes, though God manifest his, his presence in a special way there at the temple, there between the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant, God's real presence is in the heavens. And notice how that's stated here. He has prepared his throne in the heavens. LBJ, back during the 60s, the Cold War, uh, one of the reasons he was so interested in putting a man on the moon, because he kept saying it's necessary that we take the high ground. Among almost all ancient war, you always wanted to have the high ground. Gave you an advantage. Gave you a, if you got the high ground, you're looking down on the enemy. They've got it tough, you've got it easy. And so LBJ wanted to go to the moon so we'd have the high ground. Well, God's got the high ground. He is out of reach of those over whom He rules. He doesn't have to worry about coups. He doesn't have to worry about you voting Him out of office. He doesn't have to worry about you turning on Him and driving Him off the throne like David was driven off by Absalom. He is completely out of your reach, far above you and I. His kingdom, it rules over all. Uh, notice that we have the idea here that Whatever speck of dust we can find, whatever twig of a tree, whatever blade of grass, God is ruling over it. You can find me a part of earth that doesn't have heaven over it. I'll show you maybe a part of earth God doesn't rule over. But as far as I know, heaven is over everything. I, I had an old preacher friend back in the 70s, I think I heard this guy preach, and he said, I believe that when a wave, of the thousands of waves that come across the ocean, this wave comes ashore, dashes itself against the boulder, and dissolves into millions of droplets of water, that every single one of those droplets, droplets of water as it falls back into the sea take the exact path that God Almighty has marked out for it. Even something as minuscule as the one drop of a million that came from a wave dashing against a rock. Nothing is out of the control and the rule of God Almighty. We're taught that by Jesus. He said, not one sparrow falls without the knowledge of your Father. Not one hair can fall from your head. He numbers our hair. He didn't have to count very high from mine. But for some of you, he's got to count pretty high. He knows when a hair falls out of your head. That's how minuscule, that's how micromanaged this universe is. Because if there is one molecule that God doesn't control, you and I better watch out. We have no clue. In other words, unless it's all controlled, none of it's really controlled. And God is ruling in an absolute way. He rules in the heavens. Notice the angels being addressed 
in verse 20 and 21. The angels in verse 20, the hosts of heaven. And uh, we are reminded that they're in heaven. And, and what strikes me is that these angels who never knew sin, these are holy angels, never fell into sin like us, and yet they are blessing God. Uh, we know that because Revelation chapter 5, the angels, all the angels in heaven, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Unto Him belong power and riches and glory and honor and blessing. Even the angels are blessing the name of God. And they never sin. They know nothing of redemption in the sense we know. The, the, you say, well, how are they related to God? He's their creator. He's their maker. He's their sustainer. If we had no sin to be forgiven of, we'd still have a reason to bless God. And notice, do you suppose the angels are sitting around saying, well, I sure hope he doesn't call on me today. We have the picture of the angels that they are ready instantly to respond. They're volunteering. You, you recall this Old Testament story, Joshbat and Ahab going to war, and uh, Micaiah is telling them you're going to succeed. And they said, well, wait a minute, tell us what God really said. He said, all God sitting in the heavens and the host of heaven were on the side, all around him, and said, he, God says, well, who will persuade Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this wise, one said on this wise, and this, this one said, I'll do it. How, how are you going to do it? I'll go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of this prophet. Notice they've got everybody volunteering. It's not like, okay, who will volunteer? <laughs> but all of the hosts of heaven say, I'll go, I'll do it, I'll do it. That's angels who never knew sin. How much more so then, verse 22, bless the Lord all His works in all places of His dominion. How much more so those of us who not only are gods by creation, He's our maker, our sustainer, but also by redemption. We're not only His creation, we're His new creation in Christ Jesus. Again, exhortation, soul song, soul music, to sing this song. Soul, get busy. Exercise yourself. To Barak, to bless the God who has made you. And don't you, so, I'm telling you, don't you forget all his benefits to you. Hard work is hard work. We don't want to do that. We, we, we get lazy. But that's the admonition before us tonight. All right, we'll stop there.